Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 6th of July, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, And Mike. by video link, we've got uh, Alex Thompson uh, bringing us Eastern Exposure uh, approaches. I apologise. Uh, right, now, let's get straight on with uh, the lovely Nadine Dorries, uh, who never ceases to amaze us. Uh, and if you remember when uh, she launched the uh, online safety bill, and in fact, all the way leading up to it, uh, the message was that the online safety bill is all about protecting children from online harms and abuse. That's what it is. It's not about disinformation, uh, except it is about disinformation. Um, so this is the uh, low quality graphic they provided this morning. Uh, online safety bill protecting the UK from online disinformation. That's what it's all about. Uh, so what are they saying? They're saying the government will table an amendment to link the national security bill with the online safety bill. Uh, strengthening this landmark and pioneering internet legislation to make the UK the safest place in the world to go online. Uh, a new foreign interference offence uh, created by the National Security Bill will be added to the list of priority offences in the online safety bill. This means social media platforms, search engines, other apps and websites allowing people to post their own content will have a legal duty to take proactive preventative action to identify and minimise people's exposure to state-sponsored or state-linked disinformation aimed at interfering with the UK. This term state linked is new um, and uh, it goes on. This includes tackling material from fake accounts set up by individuals or groups acting on behalf of foreign states to influence democratic or legal processes such as elections and court proceedings or spread hacked information to undermine democratic institutions. Right. This is really important. Now, uh, here's the thing. Pay attention to the, what they just said there. Uh, on behalf of foreign states to influence democratic or legal processes such as elections or court proceedings. Keep that in mind as we go through this. But anyway, let's bring the uh, National Security Bill uh, on screen. Here it is. Uh, it's at committee stage in the House of Commons at the moment. Uh, and uh, again, what the government's saying about this is that under the National Security Bill, uh, uh, it's in committee stage, a new offence of foreign interference is established to deter and disrupt state threats activity. Uh, including state-linked disinformation, which undermines the UK. It will make it illegal for a person to engage in conduct for, on behalf of, or with the intent to benefit a foreign power in a, where, in a way which interferes in UK rights, discredits our democratic institutions, uh, i.e. the government, uh, manipulates people's participation in them, and undermines safety or interests of the UK. The offence includes conduct that involves making false or misleading mis misrepresentations, uh, including using information which is true, but presented in a misleading way or misrepresenting a person's identity. So Alex, uh, I want to say welcome to the program. Um, and uh, I'd be very interested in your thoughts on what we've heard so far. You've picked out the same uh, wording which I would have, Mike, although I got it from a different source, which is the press release on gov.uk. Uh, released uh, today, the 5th of July, by the parent department, Department for Culture, Media and Sport, sorry, Digital Culture, Media and Sport, that's Doris's department. And that page is entitled Internet Safety Laws Strengthened to Fight Russian and Hostile State Disinformation. The trouble is that the two paragraphs that you've just read, which in this press release in front of me are entitled Foreign Interference Offence, cannot possibly be aimed at troll farms outside the British islands, the legal term that's usually used. Uh, for a geographical remit in such bills, uh, because what has a Russian or Macedonian troll farm to fear from an English court? So the persons involved are you and me and anyone else in Britain, although as people can see with the backdrop behind me in the sun, I'm no, not in, in Britain at the moment, persons in Britain are the target of this legislation. Uh, yes, indeed. You any thoughts before we move on? Well, no, I think the, the, the language in this is just so, it, it's becoming broader and broader undermines the interests of the UK. Yes. Uh, how do you define that exactly? Can you be specific? Of course you can't be specific. It's it's meant to be broad. It's meant to be arbitrary so that it can be enforced arbitrarily. Uh, Russian puppets, state-linked. What does that mean? Does that mean journalists who uh, report with or for or talk with Russian media outlets? Does that mean they're state-linked? So the, the question should be, is the information true? They've even caveated this, Mike, uh, what you read. They said, yes, information which is true, but presented in a misleading way or, or misrepresenting a person's identity, but presented in a misleading... Who decides whether it's presented in a misleading way? It's, it's the same uh, ridiculous community standards 
that Facebook use and the fact checkers use and Twitter uses. So the government is now uh, using the same ridiculous half-baked, half-cocked principles that social media firms in Palo Alto and San Francisco do to regulate speech on their platforms. That's exactly what this looks like. Right. So let's uh, just bring Nadine back on and uh, hear what she said. The invasion of Ukraine is yet again shown how readily mm -hmm. Russia can and will uh, weaponize social media to spread disinformation and lies about its barbaric actions, often targeting the very victims of its aggression. Uh, we cannot allow foreign states or their puppets, hypocrite, uh, to use the internet to conduct hostile online, online warfare unimpeded. Uh, and uh, then she said, uh, that's why we're strengthening our new internet safety protections to make sure uh, social media firms identify and root out state-backed state disinformation. Right, now look, what I want to do here is, and I realize it's a bit trite, uh, but uh, let's just put this on screen. Uh, I just want to compare uh, the development, the, the, the kinds of legislation that, and things that Nazi Germany did with what Britain is doing at the moment, just to sort of give people an impression of where we are, where we've come in the last 12 to 18 months and where we're going in the next 12 to 18 months. Okay, so if we look at the kinds of things that Nazi Germany did, uh, shut down freedom of speech, uh, and in the UK, we have the online safety bill now combined with the national security bill. And we've also got the counter state, threat, state threats bill. These are all going through Parliament at the moment, designed to have a massive chilling effect on free speech. What else did the Nazis do? They criminalized protest. And in the UK, we've had the, crime, the Police Crime Courts Sensing Act that criminalizes protest. And we've now got the public order bill, which is going to further criminalize protest. Uh, then what else did the Nazis do? They uh, ended free and fair elections. Uh, well, we have the Elections Act. And just, uh, just to, to give an idea of the, about the Elections Act here, uh, it's now law, at least, or legislation. Uh, and what various people were criticizing about it were three main parts of it. Uh, first of all, the need to show a photo of identification in order to vote. Second, the rules around campaigning. And finally, the fact that uh, the, uh, the legislation effectively removes the independence of the Electoral Commission and puts it under uh, parliamentary oversight. So, uh, so this is effectively uh, having a massive effect on uh, the freedom and fairness of elections going forward. Let's move on with this. What else did the Nazis do? They made themselves unaccountable to the law. Uh, the UK government uh, judicial review bill going through Parliament at the moment uh, effectively makes them unaccountable to the courts. Uh, Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act, already an act of Parliament, allows agents of the state when it's gather when they're gathering intelligence on protest groups, on uh, NGOs and so on, to commit criminal acts. In other words, they're setting their agents above the law. Uh, this is exactly uh, similar. Uh, human rights removed. We've got the new British Bill of Rights coming, uh, which is absolutely doing that. Uh, then what else did the Nazis do? Say stripped citizenship, or at least they had the part of stripped citizenship. Uh, we've got the Nationality and Borders Bill coming, which is giving the British government exactly this more similar uh, powers. And finally, on my list here, control of education. Uh, the Nazis absolutely took control of education. And in the UK, we have the Schools Bill, which is doing pretty much the same kind of thing. Now, I've put uh, the, uh, uh, the German flag uh, and the British flag uh, at the top there. I could have put uh, Hitler and, and uh, uh, Boris on there, for example, but in fact, if anybody thinks that uh, any of this would be different under a Labour government, uh, then they're sadly mistaken. Um, so first of all, uh, what are your thoughts on, on that? Well, I, I think it's important to remind people, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, that's the foundation of Western civilization. And when you start meddling with this and you start tinkering with it and uh, doing it to your own political uh, uh, whatever your political proclivities are of, of the current day, okay, then you're undermining, you potentially undermine the basis for Western civilization. That's not an exaggeration. Disinformation is now anything which embarrasses or refutes the official state policy or refutes or embarrasses or undermines any mainstream corporate media narratives. That's now what disinformation um, is so anything that undermines state institutions, people's trust, and it's just shown out in all the polling. People's trust in government, media, and institutions 
is a direct reflection of the poor performance and the scandals and all the things that those institutions themselves have done. They've just found a convenient scapegoat, which is getting a little bit long in the tooth, which is Russia, 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 Russia. Okay, it's beyond the pale now. So they're clearly not confident with their own positions. Okay, they're not confident with their own policies. If they were, they wouldn't mind what Russian media is saying. They could be poking fun at it all day, just like we poke fun at The Guardian and all the tripe that's coming out of The Times and in the BBC. We, we have a field day. In fact, we wouldn't exist if our mainstream media wasn't so bad and didn't lie with such incredible uh, pace. Okay, yeah. so that's the number one thing. So, but what is this? You just compared... The, the chart you showed, Mike, fascism, mobilizing everything and anything in the, quote, national interest, okay? That's what fascism is, and this is, I'm sorry, but, you know, that's the direction that things are heading, okay? Uh, and Alex, it is absolutely staggering, isn't it, how far uh, the UK government has moved in this direction, and almost nobody has noticed, bill after bill after bill, some already through Parliament, others going through Parliament in the next section, session. And nothing from the mainstream press on this. I do wonder whether there is some kind of super injunction, a D-notice, uh, or the modern equivalent, because that term isn't used anymore, apparently, uh, preventing the Ofcom-regulated media from talking about it. Uh, there are a few Ofcom-regulated outlets, such as GB News, which occasionally will mention one or other of these uh, legislative attacks, but never the whole thing in concert. The only thing missing from your list there, Mike, is the Reichstag fire. And uh, I recently took my dear wife to see the Houses of Parliament from the outside. I didn't want all the rigmarole of going in. And uh, it reminded me of what had been said recently by the Speaker, I believe, and certainly some ministers as well, uh, that there could be a, an electrical fire in the Houses of Parliament any day now. <laughs> yes, well, indeed. OK, well, look, the question then is, where, where does this take countries? Um, and, uh, well, let's move to the Netherlands, uh, Alex. Um, and the Dutch farmers protest. And I'm just going to show uh, a little piece of video which has come to light, which I think takes things really a, a step further than we've seen at any, in any type of protest up to now. So just have a look at this. Nee joh, hey wapens jongen, wapens! Hey, wolle, rij weg jongen, rij weg! Wapens is daar! Pik, pik, je hebt het op film! Ja, vroeger! Je hebt het op film, dat ze schieten! Ga weg, ga weg, ga Okay, so clearly the Dutch police fired live rounds at the tractor as it went past. So if we uh, put this on screen then, uh, we can see one of the bullet holes uh, on the tractor. Um, and then uh, the other video, video footage uh, coming to light uh, of the police withdrawn weapons, pulling people out of their tractors. Uh, Alex, this is quite incredible. And when you see the type of legislation we've just been talking about and the fact that governments increasingly seeing themselves above the law, uh, I'm not aware that the Dutch farmers have done anything up to this point that could possibly justify this type of behavior. No, and in one of the slides we'll see in a moment, I'm, uh, I'll show some serious uh, academic opinion uh, that they are actually bringing to light that the state, the Dutch state, is acting outside the law. Which brings us back to the first segment, of course, because Mussolini, who was a fascist before Hitler, did famously define fascism as everything within the state, nothing outside the state and nothing beyond the state, which of course means the state can dictate law without going through parliament, hence the Reichstag fire. Um, so that this, is, this is quite certain uh, that we have got to a stage of, of lawlessness. And uh, those who were watching the video will have noticed that even the female troll partner uh, of that uh, male policeman who drew his pistol in a very aggressive and, and I would say amateur fashion, because you don't draw unless you're prepared to shoot. You don't just do it to make a point. Uh, she was desperately clawing at his shoulder, trying to restrain him. So very poor training. I'm afraid, well, the Dutch police have a very mixed record in recent years, particularly where there's been an ethnic aggravation element. Uh, they have been accused of being cowards, and sometimes they frankly have been on film, uh, been pushed out of a square by aggressive mobs with particular ethnic or religious agendas. At other times, they have actually been pretty lawful, and at other times, it's certain that they've been aggressive, as we see now. So all of these are in the mix. They're, they're, don't imagine that the whole Dutch police corps are of one and the same, but that there has been a tendency 
of the Dutch state and the Dutch police as a whole uh, to say that they are one of the best in Europe and they've got no problems. And the Dutch government will often drag its heels when international uh, organizations wrap the Netherlands over the knuckles for police custody practices and police engagement practices in the Netherlands. That's been a long history of that. Well, to give it a bit of historical context, what I'm showing on screen at the moment is that the area in the Netherlands, the northwestern province of Friesland or Frisia, where the uh, uh, most protesting farmers are to be found, and as I speak, the provincial capital of Leeuwarden is filling up with protesters and with armed police. Uh, this is where the heart of the action is. And the Frisian writer, they have their own language up in Frisia, not Dutch. Uh, the Frisian writer Hilke Speerstra collected lots of accounts of emigres to Canada in the post-war years and to the US. Uh, and it appeared in Frisian, Dutch and English. In English title, it's entitled Cruel Paradise, Life Stories of Dutch Emigrants, uh, translated by Henry Baron. And there's a whole chapter in there about how the post-war police right up there in Frisia were quite loose-lipped, actually, and said that there had been orders from a supra supranational level to attack the small farmer because he was too independent, too conservative and too traditional. And at the same time, I've seen footage of the post-war Belgian Minister of Agriculture. So it may have been a Benelux coordinated policy being uh, let out of the bag then. The Belgian Minister of Agriculture did say on film circa 1947 that in the new world order, there would be no place for individual farmers. This has been buried, but it's come back with a vengeance. Um, the Dutch farmers are not united in a single union. They have the various parties and groups coordinating what they do. And the spokesmen for them are not, not normally the people who arrange the blockades of tractors or the demonstrations in person. But this is something that is just at the end of it is signed the farmers. And it's an appeal to shoppers when they find increasingly empty supermarket shelves in various parts of the Netherlands now, an appeal for understanding. So this is entitled, and I stress again, this is not uh, unanimous by all the Dutch farmers. They are far more splintered than that. But it's, it says, dear consumer or citizen, you will see more and more empty shelves in, in the coming days because of the national farmer protest. We do understand that we will be affecting people who cannot change anything about the Hague's uh, hard-headedness with our actions. And we are sorry for that, but we cannot do anything else. We don't know how uh, we can get through to the government any other way. We've been talking to the government for three years. There's plenty of technical innovations. This is a reference to this supposed policy that there's this frightful stuff called nitrogen, i.e. nitrous oxide, which is being emitted from farms. But this talking has done, has achieved nothing. The, the farmers are simply being cleared away. Uh, cattle are no longer welcome in this country. Uh, investments to keep up with the uh, continually changing regulation has always has proven to be completely useless. Um, Think, of, think about us when you uh, vote in the provincial uh, elections next year. The Hague is, uh, is kicking everything down to the provincial level, which is a well-known trick in the Dutch government, uh, to implement the plans. So the provincial elections will be crucial. They go on. The actions of the, the past, past week have, however, had effect on uh, Mrs. van der Waal, who is the newly appointed junior secretary of state for nitrogen, such an illiterate title you never did here. And so the, 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 the infamous uh, coloured uh, plan of, the, of nitrogen reductions per region for farmers, i.e. how many farms have to close per region, has at least been taken off the table because of the actions. Um, this, uh, they, they sign off by saying this uh, map was only uh, applicable to cattle stockholders and not for any other uh, industry uh, that's emitted nitrous oxide. So it was absolutely targeted towards the holding of animals. This is not fair because we are uh, innovating. Uh, the farmers then say, we are sorry that we have to uh, impede you with our actions, but we do count on your support. We don't know what else we could do. And they say, they say that, it's a, that their advice is to buy Dutch products in the supermarkets and not imported ones, because the supermarkets in the Netherlands have now got shirty, at least the globalist run ones, and have said, well, we've lost sympathy with the Dutch farmers and we will just uh, import, which of course is far less certain. Uh, the latest this afternoon is that the Dutch farmers who are involved in the protests, uh, so once again, it's not the Dutch farmers, but those who are involved, have done exactly what they threatened they would do, and they've started blockading not seaports now alone, but also Schiphol, uh, which is Amsterdam Airport, and Groningen Airport, the uh, second airport in the country. Uh, so, uh, And I believe um, Eindhoven is, is, is shortly to follow. So they are following through with things. As to the legality of what's going on, here is a LinkedIn post uh, signed off just with a, a letter of the surname, which is quite common among Dutch LinkedIn users. But uh, the gentleman's name is Jos T. 
the description is a retired professor of constitutional and administrative uh, law and general uh, theory of the state. And he's referring to the one member of the Dutch parliament, Peter Omerzicht, who has made enough noise about this in the right way. Omerzicht was the same man who saw through the uh, Dutch tax administration's deliberate fiddling of the books uh, of, of many of its claimants in order to blacken them. Uh, so he almost made himself so unpopular at that time that uh, when the last cabinet was formed, uh, there was a, a note which came to light with a, with a, a camera catching um, uh, words that had been scribbled on paper. One of the deals for the new cabinet would be get Omotzicht out of parliament. He was too much bother. Well, anyway, uh, Professor Jos T uh, says that uh, Omotzicht is aware of the constitutional rule, and he's the only MP in the in the 150 strong lower house of the Dutch parliament who seems to be aware that the Dutch provinces and the local municipalities cannot um, be obliged to pass through this uh, global or stroke, stroke national from the Hague policy of reducing NOx emissions other than by law. They cannot act uh, lawlessly. This is this is law 101, actually, for any Dutch law students. I've sat in uh, those lectures having this drummed into me. The, the municipalities and, and lower uh, sub-national uh, state organs cannot act outside the law. That's in the Constitution, Article 124, Clause 2. Omatist is the only MP who's pointed this out. And Jos T goes on, perhaps we'll put that back on screen, although it's in Dutch, in order to create such a legal basis for the lower organs of the states, uh, the, the, the local ones, to, to, to force this through, and there is no such basis at the moment, says Jos T, you would need to uh, amend the law, and then you would need, for that, you would need a majority in the House of Representatives and in the Senate. Yosti adds, Omtikt is quite right that it is very remarkable that nobody is talking about this. The norms which are being pushed through as policy, policy, policy are not in the law, but the government and the parties in the governing coalition are pretending that it is in the law. That's ending the quote by Peter Omtikt, the lone voice in Parliament. Yosti adds, as a, a law professor, constitutional lawyer, in my opinion, this isn't just remarkable, but it is uh, pitiable that as far as I can judge, uh, even constitutional and administrative law specialists are deafeningly silent about it. Josti signs off by another, giving us another quotation from Peter Omerzicht, uh, the sole voice in Parliament. Quote, during the corona or COVID crisis, the government got used to ruling by decree. And I noticed, Mike, that you maybe in a typo declared Nadine Dor described Nadine Doris as the decretary of state or decretary of state. But that was a very uh, elegant uh, typo, if so, because she's pretending the same. Omatik says what they do is they first hold a press conference. So they rule by press conference and then they go to parliament, which they're obliged to, of course, with, uh, with the, the, the excuse. Well, we can't change anything now. We've announced it. And Omatik, the, the MP, says... We have, we're seeing the same now with this nitrous oxide policy. Normally, uh, we would set the, the norms out in legislation and then make plans. But we, the Dutch, are doing the things the wrong way around. And we have now transferred this from COVID to nitrogen, nitrous oxide. That is, the law has not been amended, but the counties, the provinces, have to pretend that it has been. Uh, we'll go on to the next slide, perhaps, yes. uh, just to finish this segment from me, which is to for those who read Dutch, and even if you just want to watch the footage of what's going on, because it's getting nastier by the hour in the northern Netherlands, where the, the, the heartland of this, this protest is, uh, go to the Telegram channel Klokkenlauders, meaning whistleblowers. They're picking up a lot of UK column-themed material. They're warning people about digital identity uh, and, and how that relates to purchases and, and travel in future as well. But at the moment, of course, uh, they are very focused on the farmers' protests. Um, and Alex, uh, sorry, just just before Patrick comments, uh, I'll just mention that, that my understanding is that uh, the Northern Irish government is wanting to see one and a half million fewer uh, farm animals in, in that area as well. So so this is not something that is confined to, to the Netherlands at all. Sure. And and uh, uh, what Alex just pointed out there, what uh, Mr. Uh, Omatish is referring to, um, this is exactly what happened. Uh, we recovered this on Friday in the EPA, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against right. the EPA, said it can't make sweeping uh, policy on emissions and to totally transform the economy without going through Congress, and it has to be law, i.e. in the Clean Air Act. Okay, so that's, to me, uh, a move towards democracy rather than, uh, you know, administrative statutory rule uh, by fiat and committee and so forth. So the, it's interesting that Alex has, has exposed this uh, in the Netherlands, because this is sort of scaled up as a as a big problem in the United States and, and other countries as well. Yes. Right. Well, let's uh, come back to the UK. And I uh, suppose we have to mention it. Uh, and that is uh, Boris 
uh, and clearly in a leadership battle at the moment. Uh, it's a bit of a pantomime, uh, we can say, but it's pretty clear that there are quite a number of players setting out their stall uh, in order to replace him at the moment. So uh, the BBC here is saying Boris Johnson fights on, but is hit by new resignations. I think just before we came on air, a total of 13 uh, had resigned so far, but let's put the, the main two on, uh, Rishi Sunak and, uh, uh, and uh, Sajid Javid. Uh, and really the contents of these letters aren't worth discussing in any detail other than to say they seem to be setting out their stalls uh, for their own positions. Uh, and uh, well, in order to replace uh, Rishi, yeah, sorry. I, I just want to comment, Javid has absolutely um, impeccable handwriting there. Yeah, absolutely. It's very impressive, yes. the, uh, the skills. The, skill, the total skill, absolutely. Uh, and of course, uh, you know, to, in order to replace, uh, I mean, who could replace Rishi? Well, none other than uh, Nadim Zahawi, otherwise known as Anton LaVey. Uh, and uh, well... Lord Chancellor of Vaccines. Yes. And of education, of and, course, and education. Subsequently, they're so they're so talented. The versatility is just amazing. How they can jump from one portfolio to the next, Mike. That's why they're in the positions they're in. Well, the talent is undeniable. It, absolutely, and I mean, he didn't say what's on screen at the moment, but he would. I'm sure he would have if he had been asked. He's he probably would have said, "Of course, I don't know anything about money or finance. Why else would they put me in charge of the treasury?" He knows a lot about vaccines, though. Uh, well, that's why they put him in charge of, uh, of the economy. Children. Or he wants to be in charge of the economy. So I guess that's that's a good start, isn't it? Alex, I don't really know what to say at this point. Uh, it is it is a pantomime. Yeah, for those who don't know what pantomimes are, because even some of our American viewers uh, sometimes wonder what that means. It's a, a tradition going back to the medieval uh, Italian theatre of having people put on uh, you know, strange clothes, dressing in the opposite sex, although nothing like a drag act. It's, it's very frumpy, really, and dowdy, but it's, it's a, a light form of entertainment in which people put on silly voices and act the opposite of what they are and act absolute buffoons. And uh, this has spread. You know, we might lose Johnson as prime minister at this rate, but the rest of them are going to be pantomime actors in their own way. And to link that to the previous segment, people playing things that they're not, the other element in the Dutch uh, protests at the moment is the uh, increased use once again of the undercover policemen known as uh, the Romeos after the, the call sign for the letter R, who for the last 40 uh, years since the last coronation had some nasty protests in it, uh, have been doing some quite unlawful things, which uh, European and, and world organisations have condemned the Dutch for. And uh, there is a neurologist named Jan Bonter who is now in police custody since Monday night uh, because he indicated on, uh, in, on his Twitter channel the names of some of these policemen who are operating at the very edge of, if, or if not outside the law, trying to entice people uh, as agent provocateur into starting violence. And I suspect that uh, with the uh, covert Human Intelligence Services Bill, one of the ones that you mentioned in your first segment, even the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Britain's finance minister, may be able to have people uh, posing as things that they're not in order to entice violence and get people locked up. This has been standard practice for a long time. A lot of governments do this. Alex, what I was encouraged of looking at the footage of those protests in Holland is the crowd recognized who these agent provocateurs were and they chased them into a police van. Um, so the people are getting wise to this game. And I think that's one of the benefits of the information revo uh, revolution is that it's allowed people to see and learn some of these different <laughs> bits of tradecraft there. But that, that was really uh, amazing to see, Alex. Uh, and just to finish this uh, segment, of course, uh, the reason for the latest round of resignations around Boris is because Boris has admitted that he knew about uh, uh, the allegations made against Chris Pincher, uh, unfortunate name. Uh, and uh, well, But of course, Alex, very briefly, uh, this is not unusual for the Tory party, this type of behaviour. No, um, there's, there was a time in the 90s when, you know, every second or third Tory MP in the John Major government seemed to be uh, getting handsy with people. And uh, even some of those, uh, you know, who, who were accused of uh, sexual abuse ended up allegedly dying in their, or taking their own lives or, or dying in accidents in very strange and sexualized ways. So it is a well-known control mechanism that the, the, the whips of the various parties use. And one can never tire of pointing out that the chief whip under uh, Sir Edward Heath, the prime minister who took us into the EEC, as it then was, later the EU, did say on camera in a 1995 uh, BBC TV documentary, his name was Tim Fortescue, uh, that sexual proclivities and foibles were the best way of controlling MPs for life. Yes, indeed. Okay, well, let's uh, move on then. If uh, you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org 
uh, you'd be very welcome there and uh, your support would be very much appreciated or you could pick something up from the UK Column shop. Uh, but in any case, do share any material that you find uh, and uh, that would be appreciated as well. So uh, let's move on then to energy. Uh, Patrick. Well, we're talking about energy. We're talking about the economy. You know, what's the result of all of these uh, incredible policies, the sweeping policies coming to power? Look at this record high energy prices in Europe. They're breaking all records. So how bad is it? Prices quadrupled uh, in a year. So the excuse that's being given in this case is exacerbated by maintenance problems at France's nuclear power plant. So I'm not disagreeing that that's probably a, a crisis, but the problem is when, you, when government starts tinkering with the market, as all governments within NATO's borders, can we use that term? NATO's borders? Yeah, well, they use it. Uh, all governments within NATO's borders are tinkering and messing around with the economy. They're messing around with, quote, supply chains. And so when something like this that might be incidental, i.e. a maintenance problem, it actually might be because of government policy, but let's yeah. just say it's incidental, it, the, the force multiplier of that problem is just that much bigger yeah. because it, nothing else is working. Okay, so we're in this problem. There's a whole bunch of things that can possibly go wrong now. And look at this. You never thought you'd see a headline like this, would you, a couple of years ago? Germany has its first monthly trade deficit since 1991. Uh, on inflation. So <laughs> here we go. So this is interesting. Now, my question is this, is anyone in America losing sleep over this? Probably not. Is anyone in Britain losing sleep over this? I think there, I think there's a lot of people in Washington, London are very happy with that headline because it dovetails so nicely and perfectly with post-World War II policy um, and now coming into to this new phase this new post, we're still in the post-war phase, but this is the new post-war phase. We, ha we have to always remember Mark Carney's comments a couple of years ago that we're in a period of transition, that it's a whole economy transition, uh, and anybody that doesn't uh, get on board with the transition agenda is going to be bankrupted, and, and I think we're seeing that. So Germany's down, but uh, gas companies in Britain and the US are doing very well and are set to do very well for quite a few years if this current crisis continues. Indeed. So let's uh, move on to Ukraine then. And uh, what do we have? Well, let's just do a quick update. Where are things right now in Ukraine? You see a lot of stuff in the headlines. You probably noticed, well, it's a NATO uh, war and uh, the US and NATO there. That's NATO. It's the United States and Britain and everybody else is plus, plus, plus. There's uh, Putin and Zelensky. Zelensky's always got his hand on his chest, not quite as much as Napoleon uh, under the lapel, but uh, nonetheless, he needs money. We'll be on to Zelensky's latest demands, but let's just look here at some of the highlights. So this is what's happening in uh, just north of Donbass here. So you can see the, the Russian advances uh, westward here. And why is Cherniv? You can see that the encirclement is, is happening now. Why is this important? Because all roads here uh, lead to uh, Kharkiv. So you can see, again, this is just a continuation of that. Russia's making steady advances in all these different areas north of Kharkiv, and there's the city itself. So the security envelope that would normally allow a little bit of a buffer zone for Kharkiv, which is currently controlled by Azov Battalion and other uh, Ukrainian armed forces, that's shrinking. Slovenyansk, Krematorsk, these are two key uh, cities, and they, they're very symbolic too of the last eight years in the Civil War. You can see Ukrainian forces here completely pinned down in Lysyshansk. This is now under Russian control. Um, and so now you can see how this whole battlefield is slowly changing. The problem is this doesn't get the attention of the Western media because they like big bombastic sort of events. And so they like to, they say, well, Russia's blitzkrieg on Kiev has failed. And that's a good headline, but none of this is very interesting for Western mainstream media. Again, more key cities. In fact, all of these are key towns and villages now in this area. As we get closer to Donetsk, why is this important? Because the control of these areas will relieve pressure on Donetsk, just like they've now gotten control of the whole of uh, Lugansk recently, Russia. Zaporizhzhia, that's where the largest nuclear power plant is. That's moving us over closer to Nikolaev, and that's just east of Odessa. So you can see how things are heating up down on this sort of southern rim there, um, heading along the coast of the Black Sea. There's dogfights going on reportedly between Ukrainian Air Force, Russian Air Force there. So there's some air action. 
But uh, you can see that's that land bridge. That Odessa will be the completion to Transnistria from Crimea, Kherson, Crimea, Transnistria. That's going to be closed. That could very well happen uh, in the next few months. So things are not looking good in Odessa right now. Very unstable. We'll show you that here. But that's Rybart. Now, just to show you, that's pro-Russian channel and Telegram. So let's go to British intelligence. More or less the same thing. More or less the same thing. This is UK MOD straight off of their Twitter account mm -hmm. this morning. So it's more or less the same thing. The, but the problem is you wouldn't know this if you're watching our media outlets because they're not really, they, they might report that these things are happening, but the narrative you're not getting. So anyway, we're just showing you there what the British MOD are saying. Uh, but part of the problem with the media, of course, is they took such a strong position right from the beginning. Uh, it's very difficult for them to report this because this is bad news for them. Yeah, and it goes, it's like our ministers don't actually look at our own MOD's battle maps. It's really weird when you listen to their speeches. We're not uh, singling anybody out, of course. Oh, we might do later. Later. Who knows? Um, so the, the next is, this is Colonel McGregor. He's been one of the big voices uh, in America. In fact, one of the only ones on mainstream media that have been kind of doing Veritas commentary, telling it like it is. Mm -hmm. He's talking to Sky in Australia here. And again, how come you can't get a pundit like this to give a contrarian view on any Western media outlet? Very rare. Only Fox News. Tucker Carlson and Sky Australia are giving him airtime at the moment. Let's listen to what his assessment is. This is one of the most decorated combat veterans uh, in the United States, but roll this. How much help can Australia be when we provide weapons such as Bushmasters, APCs, etc., to Ukraine? How much help is that on the ground? I think you have to keep in mind that 80% uh, of the Ukrainian military that existed at the beginning of this war is now destroyed. 80% of its manpower killed or wounded. And even in the best of times, a standing professional force has difficulty rapidly assimilating new weapons, particularly the kind that you just described, that are not easily employed without first uh, serious training. So I would argue that probably not a great deal. Of course, there is a plan, I, I'm told, in Washington to sustain this conflict indefinitely until uh, the Russians are defeated or we run out of cash. I don't know which. But uh, in the short run, no, I don't think it'll have much impact. So, so when it comes to potentially changing the course of the conflict, uh, again, you would, you would suggest minimal? Yeah, if you look at the enormous losses the Ukrainians have taken, uh, how well would anybody do under those circumstances if you're bringing in reservists, uh, essentially pressing manpower into uniform to fight that are not trained and, and have no experience? It's not going to go very well. In the meantime, the, the Russians uh, have withdrawn most of their regular army combat forces, about 70 to 80 percent of them. They're resting and refitting, and most of the fighting is being done by Russian separatists from uh, eastern Ukraine, Chechens, mercenary troops backed by Russian artillery. So the Russians are by no means overstretched or hurting mm. at this point. So what could nations like Australia be doing instead of of the weapons or the military hardware that we're providing? What could we be doing instead? Well, if you understand that the longer this lasts, the more people are going to be needlessly slaughtered, the more damage will be done to Ukraine. It's already effectively a failed state. It could mm. be erased completely from the map then I would argue that we need a ceasefire. And Australia should press for that because no one in Washington is going to do it. But I'm hearing from people in uh, Berlin and Paris and those in London who would like to have another no confidence vote and remove Boris Johnson, that there's growing support for just that. Interesting at the yes. end there, he's mentioning Boris Johnson in Britain. Uh, right. have, have we heard anything about another, uh, another round, another? Another go at Boris. Was, does that mean yes, a go no, at the it, policy? What does that mean in terms of the policy vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine? Could they dump the old policy when they dump the leader? Uh, that depends who comes next. If it's Liz Truss, then no. Uh, but the question is whether the UK government is actually uh, controlled by some other, uh, you know, from a policy point of view, uh, entity. Well, or, or internal. I mean, we have, we, Alex, both. Alex, we or have, a, we have a permanent civil service. The <clears throat> policy never changes. That was throughout my GCHQ time, the bitter realization of uh, bureaucrats, the, the foreign office and the ministry of defense were 
you know, uh, very much run by mandarins. And the second place was given to think tanks, and and ministers often uh, ministerial will, will often finished a distant third or fourth. Yeah, well, that's pretty scary. Yeah, think tanks. Well, uh, <laughs> let, let's go to Odessa here. Now we talked about impressing people into service. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening now. This is what the Zelensky uh, government, some will call it the Zelensky regime now is doing i mean when you're impressing civilians men and women into service where are you in terms of your sort of military cohesion right. i don't know we're not sure so let's take a look at here this is the uh, speaker from odessa sergey bratchuk and this is what he's saying there is now every chance that the war will drag on and if not all then most men as well as most women will go to battle he's talking about the people that live in odessa um, so troops are now uh, on the front line will simply need to be replaced okay and he goes on here just to uh, reiterate that point uh, the vast majority of men and a significant number of women practically everyone will have to serve so basically they've passed and this this made uh, the headlines they've passed a, a diktat in odessa you can't leave the province unless you get permission from the military so they are planning to impress everybody into, and so people are, are basically protesting. They're saying, I don't want to die uh, at the hands of the Russian military, and I'm not against the Russian military per se. Mm -hmm. So this is a huge problem. So what I think is the longer Russia uh, drags, waits this out, you're going to have some internal uh, disintegration within Odessa mm -hmm. in terms of the uh, structures of authority. Um, it's just not a popular war with all Ukrainians, despite what the Western mainstream media and our grandstanding politicians would like to have you believe that everybody's rallying behind Zelensky and everybody uh, hates Russians. Okay, it's not actually the case. It's a very complex and a very divisive and complicated civil war, as well as uh, a conflict between Kiev and Moscow. So right. it's a lot of different things. Um, and so just to talk about that great democracy in Kiev, Zelensky has, has the courts banned another Ukrainian opposition party. I realize this is RT. That's uh, uh, seen as Russian disinformation, according to the UK government, but this is actually factually true. So a court has banned two more opposition parties, along with all the rest, uh, including the communists, of course, uh, bringing the total number of outlawed political groups now to 15. And mind you, the entire uh, media apparatus, all the different media outlets in Ukraine all have to uh, fall under one single uh, agency uh, run by the Zelensky government. Mm -hmm. So they've outlawed opposition media. They've outlawed opposition parties. They're impressing all men and women into military service between the age of 18 and 60 in some places. Okay, not all women in other regions, but... They're saying this in Odessa, okay? Mm -hmm. So what kind of democracy is this? What sort of state are you backing? Colonel McGregor called it a failed state. When he says failed states, he means the institutions that form the state are failing, okay? Right. That's not a knock against all Ukrainians. It's just a fact. Um, now, on Monday, uh, we were talking about the Ukraine Recovery Conference, which is taking place uh, Monday and yesterday. Um, so what's the update on that? Well, big, big announcements have been made, Mike, in the last 24 hours. And here's the big payday. This is what we're all anticipating, yes. right? Here we go. Ukraine lays down $750 billion recovery plan for its, quote, post-war future. So there's our, uh, our friend, Mr. Zelensky, doing his uh, normal shtick on Zoom to a bunch of European dignitaries uh, in Switzerland, I mean, this looks like a great event. Oh yeah, I saw the cocktail parties before, and it was it looked beautiful. So he's he what is he doing here? Let's take a look at this. What would you call this? We're saying this is called begmanding. This is a combination of begging and demanding, which Zelensky has revolutionized this concept. And so is the Azov battalions when they're under Azovstal. But begmanding, he's seven hundred and fifty billion from the Western taxpayers. Uh, coffers to rebuild Ukraine. Now, th this is a country with a GDP before the war of around $168 billion per year. That's their G that was their GDP. So, But yet he wants three quarters of a trillion yes. for, for rebuilding after a conflict um, that's only really affecting a very, uh, not a small portion, but only limited part of the country. It hasn't really affected the West that much. Not, okay, it's been massively uh, disruptive to Odessa, Mar Mariupol's gone, etc. But Donetsk and Lugansk have been gone for 
eight years. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, but let's look at, let's put this into perspective. In perspective, what does this mean? Think about this. All operations in Afghanistan, 2001 to 2019, approximately $765 billion. Okay. That's 18 years worth of war and reconstruction. That's the total figure according to the Congressional Research Service. But let's look at the reconstruction. That's Afghanistan, 2002 to 2021, just spent on reconstruction, $145 billion, okay? Now, how, that represents what, 18, 19 years of reconstruction? And we're only talking about here uh, a couple of months so far. So this is what Zelensky is putting out. Uh, and so we'll go on here. So the reconstruction of Iraq, 2003 to 2014, 220 billion for that. That's 11 years. That's Brookings Institute. Those figures you can check with other agencies. So that's, just put that in perspective. Where's this money coming from? Where's that money going to go? Yes. So let's look at how they're going to carve this up here. So here's the big map you can see here, and there's the proposal. I put the euros down on the margin. That was me little bit of uh, artistic uh, license there. <laughs> so you can see all of the uh, European countries have all lined up to take their stake on specific cities and regions. Isn't this the most amazing thing? Everybody seems to want to get a piece of the new reconstruction pie. They want a piece of that 750 billion pot, okay? Yeah. Where's that money coming from? That's another question. Uh, we'll have to save that for another segment. So let's look at the Ukraine reconstruction here. So how's this going to be broken up? Let's take a look at this. Ireland is going to get Rivney. So Ireland wants a little bit of that action, right? I mean, Ireland itself needs a little bit of reconstruction. I don't know what they're doing in Ukraine. What could they possibly offer? Maybe some pubs or who knows. But uh, Germany, they want Cherniv. So um, German, a good place to dump German products. That's what, that's what this is going to end up being. These countries will provide the contractors and they'll be able to dump their goods there. That's always what happens. Right. So let's go on here. Canada, they want Sumi. So Trudeau is going to bring a little bit of some woke values and a little bit more uh, <clears throat> gender neutral. Uh, U.S. and Turkey going to share Kharkiv. Isn't that good? Nice joint venture there. Excellent. That's good. Czech, Finland, and Sweden, they want Lugansk. I don't know how they're actually going to pull that off logistically in the near future, but hey, this is what they're talking about in Switzerland. Look at this, Belgium. They want a piece of Nikolev. What can Belgium offer to there? What, what's their big chocolates export? Chocolates. So that's going to push Poroshenko's Russian chocolate monopoly right out of the picture there. Look at this, Sweden and the Netherlands. Sweden again, Kursan. So again, some Scandinavian uh, uh, products and firms are going to get involved there. So great. Switzerland, I guess they want Odessa. That's the region of Odessa. Okay, that's called a Moisky, by the way, probably has yeah. put his finger on that, by the way. France, they want Odessa City. So a nice dumping ground for French products. Carrefour, hypermarkets, could be good. Could be good for the Odessans, right? So Norway, uh, uh, Kirovograd, uh, I don't know what's there. And Zaporizhzhia, uh, that's Latvia. That's a big uh, ticket item for a small country like okay. Latvia. They get in charge of the largest... Uh, nuclear power facility in Europe. And of course, Poland and Italy believe that somehow they're going to get their hands <laughs> on Donetsk. Now, I'd like to see that as far as a party trick goes, how they're going to pull that off. Because look, those are completely uh, under Russian control, but the DPR and LPR are not just under Russian control or supervision or whatever. Those, they have actual working entrenched and well-organized militaries and institutions. Yes. So any, any one of these countries that wants to get in there is going to have to go through Moscow or go through the DPR and the LPR. How that, how's that going to happen? I just don't see it, Mike. Um, Alex, very quickly. Oh, uh, I wasn't sure that Pat was going to put that on screen. Uh, so that's what I was gesturing uh, to have the, 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 the um, camera for. But while we're on that, and I, I expect Pat was going to go on to say this anyway, where is Britain? Britain doesn't have a slice of this pie. The US does. It's been included as an honorary European nation together with Turkey for the purposes of reconstructing Kharkiv. Britain isn't there unless it has itself somewhere else. Uh, um, yes, uh, uh, as well, regards Kirovograd, uh, it's a very obscure oblast with nothing there. So I don't know why Norway's been given it, perhaps because it's a smaller country. 
Britain, Britain is not there on that map, but Britain sees itself as being everywhere. And that is clear from the uh, press releases in the last couple of days. They are very much assuming that they're going to be everywhere on that. So everywhere is there's a British uh, flag. But anyway, let's just uh, briefly mention Liz Truss's comments at the conference. Um, because uh, she really had not very much to say other than uh, we're going to legislate to seize more assets from those who've contributed to this appalling war. And I just wondered, Patrick, are they going to seize assets from themselves? Because uh, Britain, of course, has contributed significantly to this appalling war by shipping out arms and armaments, by training and so on. So they have absolutely contributed to that, as have uh, the Europeans and the Americans. That's a great so, point. They're, they're, they're as much involved in the, quote, war. Yes, uh, as, as everybody else. As everyone so else. so if she, who's she going to seize these assets from? Start with herself, I would have thought. Uh, what, or start with any politician who has publicly said that there should be no ceasefire negotiations or no peace negotiations. Let's start there. Yes. And do we have any of those on our side of the uh, Iron Curtain? Uh, yeah, I think there's quite a few that yeah. have been lobbying to keep the war going. Yeah. Whose interests are they lobbying yes. uh, on behalf of? That's the question. Uh, but uh, Switzerland, not so keen. Well, you're talking about freezing assets. Well, mm, maybe not. Switzerland's not having it. President says it's going to violate property rights and set a dangerous precedent and uh, it you know, and needed legal justification. So Switzerland's basically saying, no, uh, they're not going to be freezing uh, Russian assets. And again, that's Zelensky, another begmanding uh, campaign uh, from Zelensky. So uh, th that's going to basically kill Switzerland because it's not just about Russians, is it? It's anybody else mm. that might have a beef uh, with the rules-based international order in the future. Switzerland would be, have a huge problem there in terms of divestments. Yes. Okay, so let's uh, very briefly then just uh, look at the NATO expansion situation. Uh, well, uh, political reporting that Trudeau has announced uh, that Canada is the first NATO ally to ratify membership bids by Finland and Sweden. So that's all very good. Uh, but as you were pointing out last Friday, uh, Patrick, it's although Turkey has agreed in principle uh, to Sweden and Finland joining NATO, uh, they're still renew renewing their threats uh, to uh, put a block on that. And uh, so you were explaining why on last Friday's programme. Uh, they've renewed that, that comment. They obviously want to see definitive action on the... Uh, on the uh, extradition of certain people from Finland and Sweden and Finland. Kurd Kurdish militants yes. and so forth, yeah. So they want to see actions, not just words. Yes. Uh, and in the meantime, on the Russian side, uh, well, this is TASS reporting uh, that a Russian senator here has uh, said that the, the border of good neighborliness between Russia and Finland is now a thing in the pa of the past. So the land border, he said, between Russia and Finland will never again be a border of good neighborliness an open border with a lot of cross-border cooperation projects where people move freely and put these projects into practice together. Uh, and uh, he said that uh, this also applied to the maritime borders in the Baltic Sea and so on. And then finally on this bit, uh, Russia's isolation will particularly hit the economy in eastern Finland. So uh, a recognition within the banking community uh, that this <laughs> really the West is shooting itself in the foot uh, by pursuing this policy. Uh, maybe there's some reconstruction money for Finland too. Hey, make it a trillion. Well, indeed. Why not? You're already up to 750 billion. Yeah. So why not? Uh, it's just printing after all. Just think. Uh, okay, Alex, let's move on then uh, to another topic. Uh, and uh, well, the headline here in the cradle is Saudi Arabia jaws, join, sorry, draws widespread criticism for complicated Hajj rules. And the reason I'm highlighting this, I'll describe in a moment, but to get to the piece itself first, the cradle.co is increasingly proving to be uh, a peerless um, source for covering Middle Eastern news. And you can see the, uh, the Hajjian progress in the image. There has already been a permit system for Western Muslims going to do their Hajj pilgrimage, which of course is a requirement uh, in Islam for all Muslims, male Muslims in particular, who can afford it. Um, the Cradle is reporting that in the latest iteration of Saudi Arabia's requirements, in order to be admitted, and there's no guarantees that you get, you'll get a seat on a flight you book because it's all done by charter for the Hajj, but in order to, to get a, a visa in to Saudi Arabia, a pilgrim must now be below 65. And this, of course, is in the context of a lot of Muslims using their life savings when they're quite old to do the Hajj. So that would thwart them. They must have three jabs of approved vaccines, not just any COVID vaccines, mind, and they have to have a PCR test within 72 hours of uh, departure. 
Um, the uh, vaccine produced by Iran, Coviran Burikat, which is, is not included on Saudi Arabia's uh, approved list. Uh, the most controversial new rule at the bottom of the screen is that you now need a permit to pilgrimage. Uh, so it's it's a worship permit, basically. Performing the Hajj without a permit will be a criminal matter, and you'll get fined 10,000 rials or $2,500. In addition to which, there is no uh, money deposit guarantee for Muslim families and organizations that are booking quite substantial sums, up to £100,000 or dollars or euros in many cases, uh, to reserve their Hajj packages. That money could go missing. Uh, there's nothing to cover it. And to go on to why I'm covering it, I'm in a flat largely uh, populated by Muslims at the moment, but in a, in, in, a, in a country which is an exception in the Middle East. It's a Christian nation, and that's very much why these Muslim visitors are here. I'm with Sheikh Imran Hussein uh, and an entourage of his uh, assistants in Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, the world's first Christian country. And Sheikh Imran Hussein has come here to learn more about historic Christianity in its in its birth region, hence the name also of the uh, the, 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 the cradle cradle of civilization and of religion. Um, and he has just, in fact, recorded where I'm sitting an emergency appeal, which will be up on his YouTube channel later and is currently already on my Eastern Approaches channel on Telegram to Muslims in Albania and Macedonia, North Macedonia, we now have to say, uh, not to succumb to temptations to start riots. Ethnic Albanians make up nearly half the population in what's now called North Macedonia, uh, and they're on the, the brink of serious civil unrest again. Uh, so it's it's a, a very interesting time to to be here, although a rather hot city. And uh, going back to the theme of religious uh, freedom and Ukraine, and unlike that, I didn't have to use a, a VPN, I suppose, to to see the Russia Today site, the RT site, because here in Armenia, you can you don't have filters like that. There are conscription orders being served at Ukrainian churches on Sunday mornings now. This again, and if I managed to find a Ukrainian source, I would have gone for it. But I, in the time available, I only found the RT report, which I take at face value. Uh, officials uh, of the draft were seen distributing conscription orders outside a church in Lviv on Sunday. Uh, Ukraine has declared a general mobilization of men aged 18 to 60. And as Pat reported, there's increasing rumblings about Ukraine copying the Norwegians and Dutch in conscripting women too. And uh, there's a member of a pro-European party, European Solidarity, who's criticized the practice, Nikolai Knazinski, in a Facebook post uh, quoted here by RT. It's Sunday in Lviv. People are traditionally going to church, to church, and someone had the idea to serve notices from military enlistment offices outside of church, Knazinski wrote. Outside, uh, outraged priests are making phone calls. They have a reason to be outraged. And in the final screenshot I've made of it, uh, RT reports that last week, Police and military officials inspected more than 400 establishments in Kiev, including, night, including nightclubs. And there's been previous footage of people being served the draft order at uh, swimming pools in the western uh, oblast of uh, Zakarpatia. And they serve notices to 219 military-aged people in these establishments. Men are barred largely from leaving Ukraine, with few exceptions. And uh, down at provincial level in, in uh, Odessa, this is uh, true of the province itself. Uh, so uh, in the face of this, the Deputy Defence Minister, Anna Malyar, said that hundreds of thousands had been mobilized. So I don't think this is being covered uh, in, in the West at all. In fact, the banning of 15 political parties, including the largest opposition party in the in parliament, the Verkhov Narada, uh, that hasn't been on BBC once, as far as I'm aware. And so they did, uh, someone did a statistical analysis and they said the chances are if you're untrained, conscripted, being sent out to the Donbass to fight the Russians or the DPR, for instance, you have a sort of 30% chance that you might die. Mm. Okay. And the other stats were in there. But I mean, it's not unusual in, in terms of what we've been seeing in terms of casualty numbers. Right. So untrained, um, unexperienced, unfit, uh, being sent out into the meat grinder. That's the, so. I guess there's no one running out to fight under Slava Ukraine. They need to force conscript people. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, not going too well. Well, indeed. Now speaking of free, freedom of religion or belief, uh, well, the UK has been hosting uh, the 2022 International Ministerial Conference on freedom of religion and belief. And uh, well, who's that at the front there, Patrick? Is that uh, yeah. Jeremy Hunt? That's uh, one future. A potential uh, leadership candidate the right dashing there. Minute, the dashing former minister. The dashing Jeremy foreign minister. So this is yesterday and today. Uh, and so this is a UK government hosted event. Uh, it's a human rights conference, apparently. And it's all about increased global action on freedom of religion and belief for all. Uh, it brings together governments, parliamentarians, faith and belief representatives and civil society, national governments, 
Representatives of the conference were invited to co-sign one or more of a set of uh, eight written statements. Uh, the set includes an overarching statement on the conference itself and seven thematic statements. So that's very exciting. Now, Liz Truss was there, uh, another future leader of the Tory party and therefore leader, uh, prime minister, uh, having uh, giving some comments. So let's just, uh, sorry to do this to everybody, but let's just listen to a couple of minutes, uh, a couple of seconds of this. We all want a world where people are free to believe. That is why, since becoming Foreign Secretary, I have taken a strong stand against anti-Semitism, condemning the hateful act of terrorism at a Texas synagogue earlier this year. I continue to stand with our international partners in calling out the shocking persecution of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. I am at the forefront of standing up for all of those suffering in Ukraine including Orthodox Christians. Authoritarians and oppressors feel threatened by freedom of religion or belief, fearing it will encourage people to think freely and question their authority. Right, that's enough of that. So Alex, very briefly, what are your thoughts? Because uh, for anybody, first of all, as Patrick said to me while that was running, it's I, I, I. So clearly she was campaigning on a platform for herself uh, first of all, but second of all, uh, bearing in mind what we led off the program with, uh, and uh, the the lack of uh, the the removal of freedom of expression, for her to stand up and suggest that uh, she is in any way defending uh, people's right to think and 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 for themselves and criticise and so on, it's just amazing hypocrisy once again. Of course, and this is now eighteen years of further de degeneration since Britain's Foreign Office first decided to copy the U.S. State Department and release an annual list of religious freedom. Of course, the State Department did it first and best, and reports to Congress on religious freedom in every foreign country. Not, of course, in the U.S. That's a different matter. Uh, the Foreign Office first did so in two thousand and four, and I remember attending the launch of it as a, as a junior officer with Jack Straw giving his spiel and noticing how many details in the catalogue that the Foreign Office released were out of date or politicised. So. It's always been a stick to beat other countries with. Uh, to, to just mention uh, the, the host of uh, the event I'm, I'm uh, at in, uh, in Armenia at for the moment, Sheikh Imran Hussein is but one of many thinking Islamic leaders who've pointed out that uh, the Uyghur uh, stick to beat the Chinese with is, is utterly politicized. And uh, he will not t trust, uh, and a, lo a lot of other observers won't, won't either, uh, any reporting on the fate of the Uyghurs, which comes from a tainted source or where the origin of the protests is CIA inspired. And I think that's now beyond doubt that that's the case. So freedom of religion or belief, yeah, there's a lot wrong with it. Uh, at the editors, in the editor's choice section at the bottom of the ukcolumn.org homepage, you will find a piece by David Scott from a couple of years ago, which we put back on there called The Battle of Meehan's Academy, about the expulsion of a 17-year-old Scottish pupil from his school in Stonehaven named Murray Allen. And that is relevant to this because Murray Allen was smart enough in his dialogue with his uh, class mentor, which he surreptitiously recorded, in which we transcribed, Murray Allen was smart enough to point out that freedom of religion or belief, that wording comes from Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, actually is one of the protected categories, right? So whenever uh, human resources people or, or teachers say you can't uh, express yourself or you can't go along with pride, which you're about to talk about uh, in all the fine details because uh, we insist, you can reply, well, I'll take the matter right up to Strasbourg because freedom of religion or belief is a protected characteristic as much as any of the other racialized or sexualized ones. Yes. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, very tight for time, so let's let's move on quickly to London Pride. Well, if uh, yeah, we thought we'd uh, give you some coverage here because it's all over the mainstream media. It's been, what, they've got a whole month now, yes. right? It's not just a week, it's a month now. So uh, London celebrates the 50th anniversary of pride. So you know, the Rainbow Coalition is growing, as you can see. There's new colors on the flag. The flag has changed. Uh, and there's some interesting additions to this. We've got some different types of pride. Pharma pride. Pfizer has made... I, this is an interesting intersectionality uh, development here. I didn't realize vaccines is uh, being blended in with identity politics. What could that mean? That if you're jabbed, that somehow you're in the Rainbow Coalition? I don't know. It's. Are you confused by this? Sorry. Um, it's very strange indeed, but this, it just gets better. And the other bit of intersectionality, of course, is Slava Ukraini. There they are at Pride leading, leading the parade is the Ukrainian contingent here. And, uh, and then flanking here we have, look at this. This is uh, Sir Keir Starmer. And uh, who's the uh, lovely lady next to him? 
she's still forgettable. That's Rainer. Angela Rainer, right. So this is interesting. So you could say Slava pride. So I'm sure that, that I love this because they are sending a strong message to Vladimir Putin and the Russians. This is this is what you call solidarity. There's yes. not a there's not a cigarette paper uh, between this coalition and what they stand for and their mission and so forth. So there we go. That's what's happening. It's just getting weird. Yeah, very. To, to be honest, there's just too much. How many more colors are going to be added to this flag pretty soon? It's They're running look, out of colors, it's, I think. It's going to look like a fractal kaleidoscope. Yes. But um, if we have a minute, there's yes, just we one, do. Yeah, yeah, there's one last clip I want to yes. show you. Now, people love when CNN gets beaten down. Now, there's a, a lady running for governor in Arizona. Doug Ducey's terms are up. So Kari Lake, she's a former local affiliate news anchor who's running uh, as a Republican for the governor of Arizona. Very important and powerful position, obviously, in the U.S. Uh, in terms of, uh, of the region. Here she is basically being badgered for an interview by one of CNN's crack reporters. This is pretty amazing. Watch this. Hi, Harry. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you. Come off You don't have a mask on anymore. What's <laughs> going on? Outside. Give a wow. minute to well, chat. Well, we're six feet apart. <laughs> do you have a minute to chat? Um, I'll do an interview. Okay. As long as it airs on CNN Plus. Oh. Does that still exist? Yeah. I didn't think so because the people don't like what you guys are peddling, so, which is propaganda. Thank do you. you. That's quite incredible. So yeah, she handled that pretty well, didn't yes. she? So yeah, she's a formidable media person, Kari Lake, as a, as a governor because of her time working in media. So yeah. uh, CNN's met their match there. Yeah, brilliant. And uh, finally then, Alex, uh, from you. This is from the Dutch newspaper Trouw, which has shamefully drifted from its roots. It was actually a Protestant paper for the resistance during the late stages of the Second World War. Uh, it now carries this wonderful virtue signaling headline, which is so good that I thought it belonged in. And finally, the headline reads, in the farmers' protests, conspiracy theorists think they have proved their point that the government is the enemy of the people. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think the video did that, didn't it? <laughs> Just bring out cops beating people with clubs, and uh, yeah, you get the same conclusion. Yes. You? Is, this, is this the mainstream media at work or what? Oh, dear. Yes, okay. Well, look, we have to leave it there for today. Thank you very much for everybody for joining us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for a bit extra on, uh, on the main live stream, uh, but otherwise we'll be back on Friday at 1 p.m. as usual. Uh, so thank you, Patrick, for joining us. Thank you, Alex, uh, and uh, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.